Americans seem more suspicious of and hostile toward government than ever. And that's a sentiment that transcends left and right, blue states and red. So why then is government thriving? Why does government assistance play an ever greater role in the lives of many people? Even in an era of Republican control of Congress, the White House and a conservative-leaning Supreme Court. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Antipathy toward an overbearing state has been part of American public discourse since the Republic's earliest days. But something new is happening. Not only is the reach of federal programs getting deeper, hostility toward them is increasing at a much greater rate in the parts of the country that have become the most reliably conservative. Places like Kentucky. It's a paradox studied by Suzanne Mettler, a professor at Cornell University in New York. She's the author of a new book called The Government-Citizen Disconnect, and she joins us this week. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Delighted to be with you. I'm glad you used the word disconnect in the title of your book, because I'm stumped. What's going on here? These two things seem at odds with each other. Well, indeed they do, and it's a paradox. Um, So we have this disconnect where over the past many decades, Americans' attitudes about government have become considerably worse than they were in the 1950s and 60s, and yet at the same time, people rely upon government social policies more than ever for their health care, to pay for college education, for retirement security, and all kinds of economic security. And so that's what I wanted to dig into to try to make sense of. Suzanne, Dan mentioned Kentucky in his introduction. You spend some time in your book talking about that state. What stood out about Kentucky and why was it such a uh, significant example for your research and your book? Kentucky in some ways epitomizes this paradox that I'm talking about. Kentucky, if you go back to the 1980s, was sending moderate Democrats for the most part to Congress. And yet that has changed over time. By the mid-1990s, they were electing more moderate Republicans to go to Congress, and then increasingly conservative Republicans over time, members of the Tea Party Caucus, the Freedom Caucus. And today, various members of their delegation are people who are taking the lead in trying to introduce work requirements to food stamps and, and really trying to scale back social policies. But at the same time, Kentuckians rely very heavily on federal government social benefits. Now, you know, it's always been a poor state. And if you go back to 1970, it was a state where the average person's income, more than 10% of it, came from the federal government through social benefits. But that's more than doubled now. By 2015, it was up to 23%. And in several counties, it's much higher. It's uh, upwards of 30 40 50%. And some of those same counties are electing some of these very conservative members of Congress. So it illustrates this paradox. Is not the same thing true, Suzanne, about border states and the South in general? 
Again, why is Kentucky significantly different from, say, Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri? All of those places have seen this trend in recent decades. Why does Kentucky stand out? Well, Kentucky is illustrative of the others. It's um, it's particularly extreme. This paradox is particularly extreme there, but you're right. Um, we could find this paradox in many states throughout the country, and you're mentioning several in the South. But I found when I looked at states all over the country that there'd been an increase in the percentage of the average person's income that comes from these federal social government uh, transfers. And at the county level, it's true in counties everywhere, including some of the wealthiest counties in the country. It's gone up everywhere. So you find this paradox is quite ubiquitous. And that's what I really wanted to delve into. Now, the paradox you talk about is not necessarily something new. This kind of idea has been out there for some time. You could go back to books like the one that Thomas Frank did in 2004, What's the Matter with Kansas? Can you tell us about the kind of research that you did and the kind of things that you discovered that that show why states like Kentucky are electing people that don't necessarily align with the interests of a population increasingly dependent on government programs? Right. Well, I tried to dig into this. I used survey data to look at whether the the number of policies that people use or the types of policies they use has some bearing on their attitudes about government. And I found that it, it does make some difference. Many of our social policies in the United States are rather hidden by design. They're uh, hidden in the tax code, for example. I'm thinking of things like the home mortgage interest deduction. And it is the case that people who've used those policies, it really just does not affect their attitudes about government at all. But even the more visible policies, things like food stamps and unemployment insurance and Medicaid and so on, don't have a great bearing on most attitudes about government. They do make people feel more likely to feel that government has helped them in times of need or that it's given them opportunities to improve their standard of living, but it doesn't make much of a dent on other attitudes that they may have. But what I found was more consequential was people's attitudes about welfare. So there are survey questions that go back over many decades where people are asked about their their views about welfare and about 44% of Americans will say they have very unfavorable views toward welfare. What I found was that that translates into very negative attitudes about government. So whatever people are thinking of when they say that, that they don't like welfare, it seems to them to be like a microcosm of government. So in interviews, people said to me that they felt that some social benefits were unfair because once people were earning a little bit more, they no longer qualified for them, and they felt that they were going particularly to people who didn't work, and they felt they were working hard, and so on. And then in turn, it seems that they are thinking of government as having those same attributes, that government is favoring someone else and doing so unfairly. And that was a very powerful attitude. That, that really just kept jumping out from all of the kinds of analyses that I was doing. One of the things that's so surprising about this is that what we used to call welfare was aid to families with dependent children. 
a New Deal policy that was around until 1996 when Congress terminated it, and that was the personal responsibility and work opportunity signed into law by President Bill Clinton. And the program was replaced by a much more restrictive policy called temporary assistance to needy families. And today, less than 1% of the American public uses that policy at any point in time. So welfare, as it used to exist, is almost extinct. And yet these very strong anti-welfare attitudes are as prevalent as ever, and they really drive this kind of antipathy, hostility toward government more broadly. Who is Mr. No, and how does he figure in this story? Thomas Massey is a very conservative member of Congress who has been called Mr. No because he seems to vote against most everything. And he's very much against social policy provision. And yet his own district in Kentucky includes several counties where over 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the average person's income comes from federal government social benefits. How does Mr. No survive? Right, right. Okay, so let me distinguish a couple of things here. So the attitudes about welfare help to explain people's hostility to government. But then how people vote is a separate matter. And there what comes into play is what I call a participatory tilt. So the people who are most likely to participate in politics have used plenty of social benefits, just as all Americans have but they are more likely to be using social benefits that are fairly indivisible, where government's role is not clear, such as policies in the tax code or policies that they feel strongly they have earned, such as Social Security and Medicare because of their payroll taxes. And so when those people are participating, they're not doing it with an eye toward how much government has helped them themselves. Um, through social benefits. There are many people who feel that government has helped them a lot. There are people who've used more means-tested, visible policies, and yet those people are much less likely to participate in elections. They're less likely to vote, and they're less likely to take part in all different kinds of political activities. So we have this participatory tilt in which the people who are least appreciative of government's role speak with the loudest voice, and that's who's heard by elected officials. How does Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell fit into this picture? He's been one of Kentucky's two United States senators since the 1980s, but he's not exactly a fire-breathing Tea Party type and has had his share of scrapes with the Tea Party and the Republican hard right. Explain Mitch McConnell's longevity to us. Yeah, Mitch McConnell, very interesting politician. You know, if you go back to the early part of his career, he was actually quite moderate in his views and and fairly supportive of labor unions. And then he had a real close election, and he changed his mind after that point in time and decided to cater to to the base more, cater to conservatives more. 
And so he moved in a more conservative direction. And then he became a real leader in the Republican Party in Kentucky. And really through that kind of model, helped to uh, provide an example for other Republicans who were hoping to, to get elected in the state. And so he became a party leader in the state, and uh, the, the state really moved in that direction politically. Professor, when we talk about this issue of voting against one's economic self-interest, there are a couple other things that we really need to acknowledge. One of them is race. Another one is uh, media, such as Fox News. But let me ask you about race. What role uh, did you find that race plays in these kinds of attitudes? Well, race did not play a role overtly in people's attitudes about government, but it did in their attitudes about welfare, which in turn shapes their attitudes about government. I found that there was a racial bias that whites were much more likely than people of color to have hostile views toward toward welfare. And that's in line with what other scholars have found in the past. That's not new. What I did find that was new was that income mattered a great deal. And uh, I found that people who had moderate incomes from household income of 35000 up to $100,000, all of the subgroups within that, were all significantly more likely to have unfavorable views toward welfare than were lower-income people and than were higher-income people, interestingly. And, you know, when you think of it, that makes sense in that over the past few decades, middle-income people, they've really increased their productivity a great deal, but their their wages have been very stagnant. And so they've increased productivity in order to maintain household earnings. It's been a difficult time for the middle class in the United States because fewer jobs come with benefits. Higher education is harder to afford. So for people who would like their children to have greater opportunities than they've had, it's very difficult to help to provide those and so on. Is the middle class more hostile to welfare because, as you acknowledge, it's getting harder and harder to be middle class and stay middle class? Are some of these folks looking over the precipice thinking, gosh, that could be me. I'm so repelled by that thought. I'll translate that into a repellent view of government assistance. I think you've articulated that very well. That's very much in line with what we heard from people once we did open-ended interviews and really asked them to talk about their views about these public policies. That's very much what we were hearing from people, that this is it's been a difficult time recent decades, and people have been working hard. They've been struggling. They just don't feel like they're getting ahead. And there is that antipathy to welfare and to government broadly. Suzanne, what is the submerged state that sounds quite conspirator. <laughs> uh, so I uh, wrote a book a few years ago called The Submerged State. And what I meant by that was these policies that I've been mentioning that are um, by de- their design makes government's role quite unclear in them. Many of our social benefits in the United States are channeled through the tax code. And here I'm thinking of things like the home mortgage interest deduction, the earned income tax credit, the tax-exempt status of employer-provided health and retirement benefits, and many others. 
we provide a lot of benefits in this way. And most of them, with the exception of the earned income tax credit and then a few smaller ones, are upwardly redistributive. They give most of their benefits to fairly high-income people. But people tend not to think of these as social benefits because the way they're delivered is simply that people pay less in taxes. Now, from an accounting perspective, it really doesn't matter whether um, I, as the government, send you a check to help you to pay for your housing or if I allow you to pay less in taxes because of your housing. Um, It's a wash from the point of view of federal revenues. But for the recipient, it can feel very different. People see government's role when it comes in that check, but not when it's channeled through the tax code. And so much of American government is, and and particularly these social benefits, are in what I call the submerged state. Professor, in talking about this issue, I was struck by a vignette in your book where you discuss some people applying for welfare and how they were made to feel shame over applying compared with people who applied for the earned income tax credit at an H&R block office, and it was very easy, very convenient. Uh, are, are you saying that the ease of applying or the ease of getting the more submerged benefits, that plays a role in failing to get as much support for government programs as might be more beneficial? Yes, this is ironic. I should say from the outset that I found that any policies people have used, they were very appreciative of and they found helpful to their lives. There was some variation in this. And, you know, people who used welfare did find it to be more difficult to attain and and more stigmatizing, whereas the policies in the tax code, much less so. But then when we look at, you know, how does that translate into people's attitudes about government, when it comes to the policies in the tax code, people simply do not connect the dots that that's a government benefit. The earned income tax credit is a very interesting example because it's a policy for the working poor. Many people who receive it have no tax liability whatsoever. So they are simply getting a social benefit that is run through the tax code, but they're not paying taxes. I mean, some of them are, but some are not. And even so, it does not have an impact on their views about government. It does not give them more positive views about government. And in fact, this is a group of people who have very negative attitudes about government and perhaps, you know, not surprisingly, because life has been hard for them. They're the working poor. They've been they've been working really hard and um, and not seeing much for it. And so but, you know, then then when you go to policies that are for higher income people, Here again, you know, people appreciate those policies, but they don't connect them to government. They don't think of government doing something for them through those benefits. They simply think they're paying less in taxes. Suzanne, can we come back to race for a second? Border states and the former Confederate states are pretty deeply red, at least at a presidential level. When folks in those states hear government do they also hear affirmative action, marriage equality, immigration, things that might trouble them? Is that part of what's going on here? Well, I think that there are several things that are going on that, you know, I I really focus in my book on what's happened to 
social welfare policies over these past many decades. But of course, they did not exist in a vacuum. Over the same period of time, I think that people in some states in the country that have a more socially conservative culture began to feel more alienated from the Democratic Party because of abortion issues and marriage equality issues and gay rights. So that's certainly going on. It's also the case, you know, if we go to Kentucky, for example, that environmental policies have been used by Republicans. They, what they have done, I've been talking a lot about connecting the dots and how people fail to connect the dots between policies they themselves have used and what government is like and what government does for them, et cetera. But I think that conservatives have been quite effective at connecting the dots an environmental policy in Kentucky and saying, you know, the economy is doing poorly because liberals have enacted these environmental policies that have been bad for the coal industry and we've lost jobs and therefore everyone is worse off. Now, there's not a lot of evidence for that. In fact, coal jobs have been departing from Kentucky for decades and for all sorts of reasons that before environmental policies existed. But it's a story, it's a narrative that has been told and seemingly has had a real impact. So it's an illustration of how, you know, it matters how public officials and organizations connect the dots for people and tell them about government's role in their lives. So, Professor, if you had to make a prediction about the future of government programs in the United States, would you say that, say, five to ten years from now, we'll be seeing more spending on all these kinds of social programs, less or about the same? Well, I think we have a big problem that is coming down the road, and that is that we are collecting less in revenues while we're spending more as a country. And, uh, you know, the tax cuts from 2017, right now we're not feeling the pain from those so much because the economy is doing well but, you know, there will be cycles in the economy. And when there's another economic downturn, we're going to really face some problems about how to afford these social benefits that at this point in time, Americans rely upon and people really need given changes in the economy from the post-World War II period. So I think that Americans will continue to want these social policies. That's not going to change. But I think that there are going to be really difficult decisions ahead. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest, Suzanne Mettler, is at Suzanne Mettler 1. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.